Yeah, you have no idea where President Wilson is. Kelly, 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 hey, hey, sweetie. Welcome back to For All Mankind, the official podcast. I'm Chris Marshall, aka Commander Danielle Poole on the Apple TV Plus series. Each week, I sit down with the cast, crew, and show creators to discuss what just happened in the latest episode. This podcast will be jam-packed with spoilers, so if you haven't seen episode 9 of season 3 yet, press pause, go watch, and come back. Today, there is a lot to talk about. So I'll be sitting down with Jody Balfour, who plays Ellen Wilson, and Episode 9 writers David Weddle and Bradley Thompson. But first, let's do a quick recap. Episode 9 jumps ahead a few months, where life on Mars has more or less stabilized. But efforts to get Kelly up to the Phoenix in time for the birth of the baby aren't moving fast enough the group realizes they need a component that they can only get from a North Korean rocket that landed nearby. Back on Earth, Larry is on the verge of confessing his affair, but Ellen steps in and rocks the nation by announcing that she's gay. Over at NASA, Alita's suspicions of Margot lead Bill to get the FBI involved. Dev's ambitions are blocked by the Helios board of directors, who want to fire him and install Karen as CEO. At Happy Valley, Kelly suddenly collapses, and there's not much time to save her and the baby. My character Danielle and the Soviet commander Kuznetsov trek out to uncharted territory to locate the North Korean rocket, only to discover a pair of boot prints. Before we know it, out pops a North Korean astronaut with a gun pointed at our heads. Don't shoot! I failed because I feared what people would think of me. And I failed to trust the compassion and judgment of you, the American people. I underestimated you. And for that, I am truly sorry. I cannot correct my past mistakes, but I can stop lying to you right here, right now, and give you the simple truth. I'm gay. And I have been since the day I was born. You guys, I am back with episode 309. And this time we are talking to our two executive producers who are also a writing team, Bradley Thompson and David Weddle, and my gorgeous, gorgeous co-star, Jody Ann Balfour. Hi, guys. Well, I guess we say hello, right? Yes. Hello. Hi. <laughs> okay, so quickly, Bradley, David, you guys are new to the podcast. What do you guys do on the show, and how did you come together? Well, we're both writers on the show, and we came together as a team because David wrote a marvelous play, and he was wise enough to put me in it, and I wanted to make a, a teleplay out of it, and we did that together. Amazing. And discovered that we could write together, and we really loved each other's material. We went to USC film school, and then we eventually uh, went to work at Star Trek Deep Space Nine. That was our first job, and Rob Moore wrote a teleplay based on the first story that we sold to Star Trek. 
And that was our beginning in the business. And Jody, obviously the audience loves you and knows you, but tell us what you do on the show. I play the first female president of the United States this season, which has been a real thrill. You knew since we were babies, it feels like, that you were always going to be the president. I mean, Matt and Ben talked to you about that when they were offering you the job. So knowing that you had this trajectory ahead of you, what's it been like to finally get to slip into those shoes and walk into the Oval Office? Really incredible. I mean, playing Ellen in season one, I did know this, but she was written in such a way that it was it was quite the leap to imagine this sort of soft-spoken um, mm. do-gooder, although doing good is, um, one would hope that would be a quality of a president as well. But, um, you know, she, <laughs> didn't, she didn't ooze charisma or necessarily seem like a obvious leader. Mm. Uh, she was sort of mm. a quiet, studious, dedicated, passionate introvert, one could even say. So part of what's been so wonderful about finally getting to do it this last season is the the enormous sort of like arc that this character has gone on to step into the shoes of someone in this position of power mm-hmm. and to see how those quality traits that were there initially are still there but sort of have been dialed up or dialed in to serve in this position that she takes on. So to answer your question really, it's just like I, I've obviously been anticipating this for a long time but mm. part of the delicious experience for me has been like finding the pathway for this person so that it doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like it comes from totally out of left field. Yeah. Bradley and David, how do you guys find ways to sow the seeds of a long payoff story like Ellen becoming president without giving it away too early in, you know, episode 103? Well, that really is the game, isn't it? Part of it is how we write her in the early stages when we're thinking like, would we elect this person president? And Mm. what kind of career would they have? Well, obviously, in the kind of president we're looking for, she's got to have a strength inside her. She's got to be able to stand up for herself. And she's got to come to that. And when Deke, for example, in that first season, hears her story and goes, you should keep this all hidden, Mm -hmm. that's where you're actually sowing the opposite side, trying to draw people away Mm. from this person's obviously going to be president. Mm Mm-hmm. The tank sequence was, we had that very much in mind. We wanted mm-hmm. her to have a heroic act that would galvanize the public imagination. And a lot of it is just really, it, it's very painstaking, difficult work in the room because you debate, should Ellen do this? Should Ellen do that? Maybe it should be this path. And then we are constantly revising and refining. And you really you just have to do it one step at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a goalpost that you're heading toward. We knew early on, like in season one, that we wanted Ellen to do the catch the tank. So we came up with that before we actually started breaking episodes, sort of in a, as an idea, not the specifics. Mm-hmm. So we're always heading toward that goal. So you kind of like every season, you think, where do we want that character to end up? But then what are the steps that get to where she ends up? And then that's a very difficult, painstaking process that all the writers participate in. One of the things that we get is the feedback from the actors in the sense that— I was that just going to ask you about that. When mm-hmm. we see, like, what what y'all do on the screen and we're going, okay, we want her to be a president and what we're seeing right now, does that lead us there or does that not lead— Oh, she did that. Wow. Okay, we can mm-hmm. write to mm-hmm. this. We can see that spark. So can we emphasize that spark and push that further? 
Was there anything memorable in Jody's early performances that really threw you guys and made you say, oh, wow, this is something about Ellen that we hadn't seen? <laughs> but no, in a good way. What are you talking about, Joe? I'm giving you a compliment. But I'm saying there's something about her work that informed Ellen in a direction that you maybe hadn't seen. Well, you know, when she forces Ed to relinquish you're going home, Ed. You're not staying mm. on the moon. There was a quiet authority that you, f- for the first time, see Ellen exerting. She's no longer a trainee. She's no longer an astronaut trying to prove herself. She assumes the leadership. And then the speech that she makes at the end of that first season, you know, is it worthwhile, mm-hmm. you know, what we're doing? And and that's also delivered with a quiet authority. It's not bombastic. And that's where we started to find what Ellen's style was going to be, mm. that that was something that people would respond to that's different than other politicians. Jody, do you think that that quality comes from a Jodyism or something that you saw on the page? Mm, I think it's a bit of both. We all as actors bring something essential to the role that is deeply part of who we are as humans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even the greats out there, we get to see pieces of who they really are. It's not all just character acting. But... I am not a very still, formal person. I wouldn't necessarily describe myself as having gravitas, all these things that I (laughs) I was really shooting for with her. Um, And I really give credit where credit is due to all the executive producing team as well as our directors. And then I worked with my longtime dialect coach, actually, not on dialect, but on trying to find a, a vocal quality that would add to a sense of maturity and gravitas and authority in her. You know, having seen a bit of the episodes now, I think I achieved that maybe 40% of the time. No, it's (laughs) shut up. It's beautiful. Be quiet. Okay. (laughs) David, talk to me about why you guys chose for Ellen to be a Republican. Because knowing that she's gay and she's in the closet. For the story, it would have been so much easier if she had been a Democrat and there had been a liberal-leaning world and then she had been, you know, the Ellen DeGeneres of politics and had come out in the 90s and everyone embraced her. Why'd you guys do that? Well, there there are a lot of gay Republicans. And (laughs) there are. But there are. And so we like that dichotomy. And considering the father that she had and the family she grew up in, we figured it was a Republican family. And people often embraced the politics of their family, at first, anyway. But even though her politics are in direct contrast with her personal beliefs. Yeah. Well, a lot of the gay Republicans, they like the economic policies. They like the Mm. defense policies. Those policies supersede their personal situation. I mean, I've watched a lot of them on talk shows, and I'm fascinated by those characters. Because at face value, a gay Republican seems like a dichotomy, but it's not necessarily. And I like that in the character because it creates this tremendous internal conflict as the Mm -hmm. social end of the Republican Party, which has certain prejudices in terms of private behavior and so on. She's going to have to try to reconcile that. And how does she reconcile that? Yeah. So I want to get back to the episode, and, and I want to talk about 309, but I want to talk a little bit about the the sort of germination of your work in 309. Kind of begins with Will Tyler coming out in 306. There was a beautiful moment, Jody, where you're watching his coming out speech, and I don't even think you have any lines. You're just watching him, and your face is so filled with emotion. Talk to me about how 
those moments in 306 informed your work in 309 when Ellen chooses to come out? And what was that experience like for you playing that? Yeah, I mean, you put it so perfectly. That is certainly sort of like the fissure in the armor that she's been able to wear all these years and has sort of perfected wearing since we saw her in season two. You know, I think it's a couple of things. It's a involuntary arising of emotion because this is a person who's living his life with agency and control over his own convictions. And she recognizes the bravery and the risks he's taking by doing that. And his behavior holds up a a mirror directly to hers. Mm -hmm. Having been an astronaut, having been up in space, having had many opportunities as a sort of public person, a person of influence, to be honest and to sort of have her honesty potentially create change in society. I think it's... It's so many things she doesn't even realize, you know? Bradley, talk to me about this uniform first. You know, we've got all these sort of gross euphemisms for don't be who you are. And whether it's the Florida bill of don't say gay or, you know, back in the 90s, it was don't ask, don't tell. How did you guys come up with this yucky little catchphrase? (laughs) Matt and Ben, I think, had this idea, and it might have been in concert with Ron, but it was muddled over Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Like we wanted to do, well, what would Ellen and Larry's version of Don't Ask, Don't Tell be? It comes right off that scene that you're just talking about, and Ellen is thrown into profound inner conflict watching what Will's doing. And so we wanted them to try to find a compromise that's not a full compromise that they hope is going to make things better. And we modeled it after the Clinton don't ask, don't tell. That was the idea. That is not satisfying, but at least they it's something they could do so and hopefully feel better <laughs> about, you know, the Will's situation and the situation of gay men and women trying to serve mm-hmm. their country. And it was also kind of the idea of a divorce. Well, if everybody hates the solution, it's probably fair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that... Um, Part of it was, you know, that Ellen is aware of space is totally unforgiving. Gravity never sleeps, all of those other things. Mm -hmm. And if I put politics Mm -hmm. in there and try and make politics fight reality, I mean, physical, hard physics, it's going to lose. So if I've got guys fighting over whether you're gay or not or what that means, then I may have some bodies on my hands. So Mm -hmm. it was like, Mm -hmm. how can I avoid this? And then there's the political side of it. It was like, I want to stay president because I want to help. And am I really helping things by hiding who I am? But I am indeed president. Would I have been elected president if I had said who I was? Talk to me about the monologue that, I mean, it must have been about two pages, right? Maybe even longer. It was quite lengthy and really beautiful. Um, I want to hear from you guys how that was constructed and then from you, Jody, about what it was like to perform that and in that experience. One thing I love about it is kind of like a Frank Capra moment, (laughs) but that Frank Capra could never do, but but it has (laughs) that feeling because in Mm -hmm. Capra movies, Mr. Deeds goes to town, meet John Doe. They're being inauthentic. They're lying to the public about who they really are. And then in a crucial moment, they decide to be truthful 
and it's a liberating, great moment. So that sort of was on my mind. But it's uh, sitting down and just thinking like, well, how would Ellen Wilson say this? Like, how would she get mm-hmm. up on a podium? What would she say? And it has to have a dramatic build, right? It has to build to the moment where she says, I'm gay. So you need to create a level of suspense as she works. And in reality, she would, you know. And, and then the other thing that just fascinated me that I think is profound about it, really profound, is what if a president goes up to a podium and is honest, <laughs> tells the truth? When has a president done that? That was the idea to make it this not only for Ellen liberating, but liberating for the American people because they've got a president who's willing to be honest. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like there was a dramatic structure obligation of it. There was the character obligation. And then just thinking about also what this show is all about. Like we're imagining a different reality where people, we have all the same problems, but what if we were better than we are? What if we made yeah. different choices? What I like is, Ella didn't just go, I'm going to go tell the truth. She's human. You get to see her like us. Like, first, she was trying to find a way out. Like, is there a lie we can tell that will get us out of this? And so mm-hmm. she has the fear, and they, at their first, she doesn't have the courage to do it. And then Larry, because he's willing to do it, she suddenly gets that together. They create mm-hmm. a dynamic where Ellen has the courage to seize that moment. All of us as a writing staff came up with that. And to be able to write it and then see Joe, we were there all on the set when Jody did it. That was, that was a, one of the great moments in the whole show in my career, honestly. Joe, talk to me about what that, that experience was like for you when you opened the script and you got to see that monologue. What was your first take on it? And then about the experience of performing it. Yeah, I mean... It was a dream. The whole thing was was a dream. I mean, I remember our table read of 309 because I was struggling to keep it together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the writing is so good that I felt like there was very little for me to do other than try not to screw it up. And <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I really spent a lot of time thinking about what Ellen would be thinking and feeling leading up to giving that speech, how much of it was truly crafted and written and how much of it was spontaneous. All to say, it felt very important mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. And doing that scene, yeah, it was an honor. Well, you did a, a beautiful job, bud. So, Well, the, I, I just have to bring up the Ellen and Larry relationship. It's just spectacular, the way you guys mm-hmm. play that. And the level of love that, that appears on the screen when you guys work together is an unconventional but wonderful <laughs> kind of thing to see. Oh, it's just my favorite. Actually, I just watched 309, and I think my favorite part about, ironically, my favorite part about the speech (laughs) is um, that last look between us. Yeah, that was a great thing because we needed a moment like that. And that was something you discovered on the set. Mm -hmm. And it became a moment that became very important. I want to dial back just a little bit because now that we're talking about Ellen and Larry, I come back to... Evil Hand and Baby Scotty <laughs> and Ellen and Larry. And we, we are reminded of this couple and they're in their bedroom and they're horsing around. And I think that 
There is the assumption that if you are a closeted man living with a closeted woman, that every single day is just a nightmare. It's just a living nightmare. And what I loved about the way that that was written and the way that you guys performed it is that these two people are really happy. There is a connection between them. There is a family there. And even though Ellen and Larry are not open about their um, sexuality and about their private lives, as a unit, they really make a great fit. Talk to me about seeing Larry go through what he went through and how does that affect Ellen? And also the whole big deal here about what the internet calls space poet, Ellen and Pam. <laughs> how does her relationship with Pam? Did you guys not know that? I didn't oh, yeah. know that. There's, there's entire Reddit threads about space oh, that's poet. that's hilarious. That's the nickname for Ellen and Pam. So how does space poet play into all of this, right? I'm sure seeing... Pam in the episodes previously really ignites you and reminds you like of the life you could have. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And also just how much she's been living sort of on other people's terms mm. and how much the sort of sensation of her life happening to her in many ways rather than her taking control over her life, which obviously, you know, the ultimate moment in that press conference where she finally does but yeah, I think that that realization that Pam left to get out of the way is absolutely devastating, mm -hmm. you know, huge, huge for her. And seeing Pam and Eight, the great love of her life, like stirs up everything there is to stir up. That and working with Megan and Nate is like just an incredible gift. And that time spent with Megan in episode eight was some of my favorite work this season. Mm -hmm. But... I, I love what you said, and that was really important to us. And I remember chatting at length with Sarah Boyd, our first director of episode 301 and 2, I believe, about those scenes. They do have a beautiful life in many ways. Mm -hmm. They are great partners. They love each other. It's just a different kind of love. So, yeah, I, as you said, it was really important for us, and I imagine very important for the writers to sort of establish that. I want to, as we begin to bring the conversation to a close, obviously I wanted to talk to um, you two who wrote the episode and talk with you, Jody, because the central focus on this episode is about President Wilson, her coming out experience. At the same time, there are all these <laughs> other amazing stories, and that's the sort of beauty and also the frustration about our show is that it's like, being one of nine kids. Like, not all of you get the big piece of chicken. Okay, some of y'all get big pieces of chicken and some of y'all eat PB&J tonight, all right? So let's talk about everybody else and the other stories in episode 309. So we've got Aleda, who is just our own little Dick Tracy here. She's solving mysteries left and right. We're all on the edge of our seat just trying to figure out how this all either blows up. Does, does Margot go to jail? I mean, what happens next? You don't want to know what happens next. <laughs> no, but, but tease us. Tease us. Come on. Well, when you know, when you discover that the person that trained you and brought you up and brought you into this life and gave you your job is selling out your country and everything you believed in, where do your loyalties lie? Yeah. Okay. Talk to me about Kelly. Kelly is now... Eight months, nine months pregnant. She's just about to blow. And <laughs> everything's falling apart. I think 308 was written by Nicole Beatty. And so then she hands it over to you guys and you guys write 309. How do you take the ball and run with all these stories that she's developed? All of these stories come from the room itself. Right. So Nicole's writing a piece of something that is already kind of determined because we see this in sweeps as opposed to 
There's the individual episode itself. How far do we take it? But the story kind of exists. And when I say kind of exists, it's like, okay, well, she could have the baby on Mars. This is the first baby on mm-hmm. Mars. The baby could die mm-hmm. in space. Mm-hmm. Mm, that'd be a lot easier. Mm-hmm. The baby could be, <laughs> be a you know, lot uh, easier. Kill it. <laughs> all yeah, of these um, options are discussed, by the way. We go down all of these roads. Should the baby die? Should she have it on Mars? And, and we lay them out on cards and we talk and we debate the pros and the cons. And then when you're laying out eight, you're always talking about, well, how will this affect nine? And you're already mm-hmm. thinking about what the stories are in nine. And what happens in nine, you start talking about 10. So the conversation cross-pollinates across the episodes as the mm-hmm. staff outlines these. Because we are trying to figure out, well, what is the most useful thing for 10 to have happen? What would be the big spectacular thing? Does it have anything to do with the baby? Because Part of the fun of working on a Ron Moore, Matt, and Ben show is that nobody's safe. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I'm sorry to tell. I'm sorry. I regret to tell you we have contemplated killing each of you at different, at different, at different I, junctures. I mean, you guys <laughs> on cue cards. I know blood, we are. Blood, we you have a lot of murderers. <laughs> you guys are murderers. Okay, so then we discover that we need this scientific widget to be able to get. Kelly back to the floating Death Star hanging above us. And so now Kuz and Danielle are going to go to the Korean ship. And then we get there. And bada bing, bada boom, what do we discover? You're not alone. (laughs) Where did this guy come from? I'll tell you what. I actually heard whispers from costumes because I was... Of course, all the actors are always whinging about the suits, how heavy the astronaut suits are. And I heard <laughs> through costumes that there was a, because there's the Helio suit, the NASA suit, and the Russian suit. And so that, I heard them whinging about a fourth suit. And I thought, oh, is there a redo of one of our suits? Where would it have come from? And they said, oh, gosh, I got we got to work on this suit for the Korean. And I thought, excuse me? <laughs> a suit for who? Well, you actually had the moment that Danielle has <laughs> at the end of nine, that you had that moment in life right there. <laughs> but Dave, tell me, how did that come about? I mean, how did you guys decide, like, you know what? Let's throw one new character in the mix at the very end of, I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> well, we had that idea early on. We thought, what if there's a Korean and he's up there and they don't know it? And that would be just an interesting way to complicate everything. And so... You know, we had to plant the seeds early in the season that would hint that this might be possible, that then you realize in the moment that Danielle realizes they're not alone and Kuz realizes, you could go back and you'll find the breadcrumbs. From the very beginning, there's the Koreans sending up this thing that tears apart uh, the hotel. So they have a space program from the get-go. I love the idea that you needed another element to complicate things, though, David, as though everything was really simple. Yeah, everything the show's that was too simple and straightforward, yeah. <laughs> now we all go from getting a small piece of chicken to just next to nothing, a spoonful of rice. But I tell you, it just, that's the thing I love about working on this show, is that you are never able to get your hands on it. It's like trying to hold a baby in a bathtub. It's just like always slipping out of your hands. And That really threw me, and I feel like it's going to play so beautifully. I'm so excited for the audience to see 
the season finale. So as we bring the conversation to the close, I want to ask each of you, Bradley, I'll start with you. In this process of creating For All Mankind and writing and being a producer on the show, what are the things that are the highlights and what are the things that are the lowlights? Boy, that's a tough one. The the highlights are easy. The highlights are the people on this show. Mm. When we write something, we know it's going to come back and surprise us with how great it is. Getting to that actual thing is one of the lowlights and the highlights at the same time, which is, wow, we got all of these great ideas, and now I got to sit there and make it happen. And everything that we write on this, it's kind of like writing in Latin, because you can't just <laughs> flip open your cell phone and talk to somebody on, oh, let's have a conversation. Well, wait a minute. The conversations between Earth and Mars, there are five to eight minutes between responses. Can't have that conversation. How do we do it? Oh, I would like to go set fire to this thing. It's going to burn up really, really well. Martian atmosphere is carbon dioxide. It won't burn. (laughs) Everything you have to question. Mm -hmm. Everything you have to question as you write a scene. You know, I want to go to the door. Is the door there? Where is it? This is a spaceship. I've never been aboard the spaceship. They haven't even designed it yet. So that's the Mm -hmm, frustrating mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. amazing part of the show. But the joy of accomplishing that and seeing what you all do with it, you're just going out there like, okay, I guess this is really good because look at them. Look at what they're doing with it. (laughs) David, what about you? What's your highlight? What's your low light? I mean, this show is a highlight. It's it. I can't believe that at 65 years old, I'm doing some of the best work of my career. I would not expect that. That's like a miracle that's been handed to me. So I find this show just, uh, I love every part. It's a transcendental experience for me. <laughs> the low life, the low part, part of it is lying in bed at three in the morning and wondering whether I'm good enough for the show. Wondering, did I write that scene right? I'll wake up in the middle of the night. Thinking that seed's all wrong. God, no, it has to go. And I'll go run in my office and I'll start right. And I realize this scene isn't in the show. No such scene exists. This isn't even part of the show. But I thought, you know, and then I have to go back and go to bed. So it's trying to be good enough for the show. And my own self doubt is probably the low part of it. Mm -hmm. I think we, a few of us, have that in common with you, David. (laughs) I wonder if self doubt isn't a universal common thread between every one of us that works in this Mm -hmm. mad business. Highlights, lowlights. I'm going to second Bradley and say the highlights are, without a doubt, everybody who works on this show and the community that we've built over the last three or four years now. And the lowlight, I don't know, three hours and 45 minutes in the makeup chair this this year, in makeup and hair chair this year. Um, It's really fun to get to take on a challenge like playing someone 20 years older than you are, but not in practicality when you have to be at work at 3.15 on a Monday morning. Those mornings are early. Mm, That kept me uh, real humble, real humble all the way through. (laughs) I just want to thank you guys so much for being on the For All Mankind podcast. Fabulous, fabulous. Have a good day. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, David. Thanks for joining us on this episode of For All Mankind, the official podcast. Be sure to listen and follow on Apple Podcasts and watch For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus where available. 
And don't forget to join us again next week, where we'll discuss the final episode of season three. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast, produced by Atwell Media. Executive produced by Will Malnati and me, Chris Marshall. Produced by Elliot Davis, Drew Beebe, Naila Andre, and Jenny Barish. Sound editing and mixing by Andrew Holzberger. Until next time, I'm Chris Marshall. Safe and sound, Earthside.